Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. I created this podcast to promote healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that as different as we may seem, we're all just people and we all carry stuff. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. Today, we'll be talking with Evelyn Wald. Based in central Pennsylvania, Evelyn wears a lot of hats in her community. She's a grief and loss counselor, an ordained Lutheran minister, and a trained divorce and custody mediator. She's also spent 10 years working for a small nonprofit organization focused on restorative justice. I do want to note that this conversation includes talk of mental illness, grief, and death, including death by suicide. So please take care while listening, and if you are in crisis, help is available for free 24-7 at the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which you can reach by calling or texting 988. Evelyn, welcome to the Apologies Podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. I'm really excited to be here. It sounds like we're kindred spirits in that both of us are drawn to the quote-unquote heavy stuff, grief, end of life, restorative justice. What is it about these experiences that speak to you? Well, I can certainly identify that in relationship to grief. When I was in my 20s, in a series of 10 years, my dad died, my mom died, I got divorced, and then my ex-husband unexpectedly died. And I felt like I was in the revolving door of death. And at that point, which was in the 70s, there wasn't really a lot of people who knew what to do, especially with someone like me. And my mom died by suicide. And that absolutely made it very complex. I could barely find even a therapist that was willing to kind of approach that subject. And so as I began to pursue what I perceived might be my career, it changed over time. And I wound up in the grief world. And honestly, Lindsay, there were a number of times where I was like, really, do I have to keep doing this? (laughs) And the answer kept coming back, yes. And now I would say, I cannot imagine doing anything else in my life besides work about grief and death. And with regard to justice, I just think, woven into my being, even as a child, was treating people fairly and, you know, not allowing people to bully other people and all of that kind of stuff. And then in my own life's journey, I happened to be an ordained Lutheran minister. And in my life journey, I found a female life partner, which excluded me from the church for a period of time. So I became an advocate for LGBTQ folk. So that's kind of the big, broad brushstrokes of how I'm involved in those kinds of heavy things. And yet, as you all know, Lindsay, such important work that needs to be done all the time. 
Wow, there is a lot to unpack there, and I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation to start to unpack it. But first, I just want to acknowledge you listed so many heavy griefs to carry, and and I'm sorry that those have been years to carry, and I can 100% also see how they have steered you and prepared you to offer that support that sadly was lacking for you to other people. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I feel in a strange kind of way, you know, I'm sure you've had people that you care about die as well, Lindsay. And there's this idea of wanting somehow to reflect the impact they had on your life or give forward if so to speak. And so I can now say that the work that I do, I really feel honors, especially those people I mentioned, but more people, you know, who have died. And it certainly tuned me in to understanding grief and remembering people, which is another part of this journey of grief and loss that not only are our loved ones who died forgotten, but so are we, the grievers. Absolutely. And I, I've, I've, I've so many questions. Um, I think first I wanted to, to go back to, so you said this really shaped the trajectory of your career and your life. What were you planning on doing before this just pile of grief boulders <laughs> kept, kept pummeling you? Yeah, yeah. So actually, my undergraduate degree was elementary education and sociology. And there was a time when I thought I might become a teacher, but there were so many more hoops to jump through that I was just like, yeah, no, that's too much. And I did work for a while with children and adults with special needs, and I really enjoyed that work. Then after these losses occurred, the trajectory of my life was kind of like, now what? Who am I? And that's when I found myself going to seminary. Faith has always been an important part of my life. But ironically enough, while I was at seminary, that bug about grief kept talking in my ear. And so several years after being ordained, I went back to school to get my master's degree in counseling and then did about 20 or seven or 28 years of individual counseling about grief. I am so grateful that you listened to that grief bug because there is such a dearth of still of grief informed anything, care, counsel, you know, both I think in, in mental health and even in faith communities, because I think it's still just so scary to a lot of folks. And I'm wondering how or if you've seen that shift at all from the time you got into this, like you mentioned in the 70s, there was really nothing. And I'm so happy to know that there are so many great folks doing great work in this area. But I also know there's still not enough. So I'm curious about your perception sort of being in the inside of this, particularly around a stigmatized loss like a death by suicide. Yeah. So, Lindsay, I will say that I think there has been progress made. Unfortunately, I would agree with you that there still is a dearth of folks that are really equipped to deal with grief. I haven't been doing individual counseling for probably five years. And honest, there isn't a week that goes by that somebody doesn't ask me if I know a good grief counselor. 
again, being out of the loop for five years, I don't know new people, but I refer them to folks. And as you all know, post-COVID, the world is just filled with people who need counseling. And so most of those even good counselors aren't available because they've got waiting lists. And uh, my experience is whenever someone reaches out to a counselor for grief or mental health work for whatever, if there isn't that opportunity to be seized quickly, they may never follow through again. However, if I come back to Center County, where I reside, I would say that in the last 10 to 12 years, because of folks like myself, we have a marvelous organization called the Jana Marie Foundation, which is about helping young people in particular learn about mental health and suicide awareness. We have a chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I just walked a week or so ago in our 12th Out of the Darkness walk. So when I look at the area in which I live, because there are folks that are really committed to this work, it's really blossomed. I do facilitate a suicide survivor group, which I do now in conjunction with Jana Marie. But I started it myself 17 years ago, when in the span of three weeks, I got three different calls from people saying, is there a suicide survivor group? Is there a suicide survivor group? By the third call, I said, give me a few weeks and I'll call you back. Mm -hmm. And I started those literally around my dining room table. And I'm sure have served hundreds of people through that. And in all honesty, it was partially selfish, Lindsay, because up to that point, I had had very little opportunity to even process my own grief around suicide. So I say to the group, I'm your facilitator, but I'm also a member of the group. And I can tell you, having just had Mother's Day a week ago, that I still get an occasional email from folks from that group remembering me and my mom. And that means the world to me. Yeah, you mentioned, I, I was going to ask, you mentioned that you hadn't had a chance to process this. How did you find your way forward with this grief that you carried without really having any resources in place, you know, closer to the time of your losses? Well, a lot of it, you know, I did simply on my own. And I can tell you that with regard to my mother's death, I was angry for a very, very long, long time. Unfortunately, my younger brother, who was 17 at the time, found our mom. Um, they were both living with me and my ex-husband. And he found our mom. And for that, I was very angry. And then, you know, having someone you care about and love make a decision to take their life now, I've certainly come a long way since then and learned a lot and understand more about suicide and, and where people's minds are and are not and the pain they're in. But, you know, if you want to have a conversation with someone, all you have to do is mention that someone in your life died by suicide and it's the end of the conversation. So I did a lot of reading and on occasion, rarely, would I bump into someone else who had had this experience? But what I found out is that, you know, people don't talk about that kind of death. 
you know, and still today, unfortunately, I would say there's still a stigma attached to someone dying by suicide as there is a stigma attached to mental health. And often they both go together. And I think you're right when you earlier said, I think people are afraid. People are afraid about death. People are afraid that someone in their circle might have mental health issues and probably they do. And, you know, I certainly would hope that less people would experience death by suicide, but unfortunately it continues to be increasing rather than decreasing. So again, I just immerse myself in reading all kinds of things about grief. And of course, back then we didn't have the beauty of being able to watch, you know, YouTubes and all those kinds of things. But I did everything I could to soak up as much as I could about grief and loss. And I did eventually find therapists along the way who helped me uh, process all of these deaths in my life. Well, and one of the things I think is so beautiful and powerful about all of these different aspects of your work that you do is they do really all weave together. Like you talked about the stigma also around mental health. And we've talked a little bit about your work with restorative justice, which I want to get into more. But what's so interesting to me, having learned a lot about grief in the last few years is the really strong link between grief and the justice system. I mean, there's such an over-representation of bereaved children and juvenile justice. You know, it's it's one of the number one, I think, if not the number one predictors of negative outcomes for bereaved children. And there's, you know, there's a sort of a grief to prison pipeline, unfortunately. And when you when you take a deeper dive into who is ending up engaged with the justice system, there's so often loss of all kinds in that population. And so I'm wondering just your thoughts on that and then your work in both and how you see those two puzzle pieces fitting together. Yeah. You know, a a long, long time ago, I was at a a grief conference and Therese Rondo, who's a a grief expert, shared something. And I, I don't know that I'm giving the exact percentage But something along the lines of above 80 to 85 percent of folks that have life imprisonment had a significant loss as a child. And I heard that probably 20 years ago, and I was astounded by that. And then, yes, did further research to find out what you just said, Lindsay, that there's a direct correlation between grief and when folks find themselves in the justice system. Now, for me, I would say it's unprocessed grief. And one of the other things that I've done for 20 years is work with an organization here called Tides, which is for grieving children and their families. And I specifically work with children that are in the age group of three to eight years old. And so when I'm sitting with them and doing work with them, I'm hoping the fact that they have an opportunity to be able to process their grief. And, you know, people go, how does a five-year-old process their grief? Well, you would be quite surprised. And it's another one of those instances, Lindsay, where no one talks to children about it, you know, because children are resilient and they bounce back. 
but I have the opportunity to talk to children about it. So recently we had a meeting and I've got about five kids in the range of six to eight years old. And we're talking about what kind of feelings do they stuff inside themselves about having someone they love died? Okay, I'm talking about six, seven, eight-year-olds. They talked about guilt. They talked about shame. They talked about fear. Of course, they talked about sadness. And it's and I'm sitting there thinking, I would love for the rest of the world to eavesdrop on this because they absolutely get it. And I think if I move into what you're talking about, restorative justice and grief, I also want to move out of the realm of grief only being thought of as death. I mean, grief is enormous. You know, one of the things that I've done for a lot of years is sit at a table with divorcing parents. And I sit at that table for the same reason I sit at the table with tides. I'm thinking about their children and I'm thinking about what is going on for those kiddos as mom and dad are making a radical change in their life, which obviously creates a radical change in the child's life. And then doing that kind of work in court, I've also had the opportunity to go into prisons and in particular to talk to mostly dads who are incarcerated and separated from their families and certainly from their children. And there are many other folks who would not bring their children to see dad because of the stigma that's attached to prison. And so, you know, there's layer after layer after layer of this. And one of the programs that got started right before I left working specifically in restorative justice was about returning citizens, right? Folks that are finally being released from prison and trying to, prior to their release, get family and friends to meet together to set up a support system when they are finally released. And the resistance of family or friends to do that because <laughs> they've been burned too many times, you know. And so as I'm saying this to you, Lindsay, I'm just thinking about all the stigmas that are attached unfairly, unjustly. You know, a person who is a returning citizen will have a harder time finding housing and finding a job and those kinds of things. When I, you know, mention that I'm a suicide survivor, there's a stigma attached to that. There are mental health issues that were part of my mom's concerns. Oh, well, you know, um, well, and I happen to be a woman who loves a woman, you know, and it's just like, wow. Yeah. There, there's so much there. And I, I want to quick highlight something you said a little while ago, just to really reiterate for folks, you talked about some of these poor outcomes for bereaved children being from unprocessed grief. So I want to make sure that is heard loud and clear that if your child experienced a loss of whatever kind, that that is not a curse in and of itself, that does not destine them for this. I want to make absolutely certain that 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 is is clear because research and studies show us that there are social supports and coping skills that can serve as protective factors. So that is not what we're saying, but we're saying it really needs diligent attention like the work that you're doing to, and, and same goes for adults. We know that social support and there are models of carrying your grief forward that are better for you and some that may be less adaptive. So we want to be clear that we're not saying like, just because something bad happened, you're forever. 
on that path. But yeah, talking about the stigmas that surround all of these things that we've been talking about. For me, I hear that and I'm thinking, I wonder if stigma is because stigma really is a way of othering. So is that just something we do as like a subconscious protection of if these things only happen to those kinds of people, then clearly I'm safe from it. And so it becomes easier for me to go about my life without recognizing that any of these things we're talking about could just as easily affect me. Yeah. I, I really love that word, Lindsay, othering. That's, that's really a great word, but I think you're right on target that protection factor. And, and, you know, it's funny because when I think about mental health and suicide and in particular, my own family, people literally distance like physically themselves from you when they hear that, like somehow this is contagious. Right. But that's what I love about your other one. Like it happens to those people. And of course, none of us wants those things to really happen to us. But in fact, they happen to everybody. But you're right. I think there's that protective factor that says, well, not in my family. And as I say that, and we're both smiling at each other, there's deep sadness in my heart because, in fact, I'm fairly certain that most families do have folks who struggle with mental health and probably don't share that with their family because of the stigma and because of the othering. Depression comes to mind, right? You know, and it's just like snap out of it, put on your big girl pants, those kinds of things. And the same thing is true with grief, right? Like, come on, it's been three months. And oh my gosh, that boggles my mind. So I think the other thing that happens is we are very uncomfortable with anything that's not what we would perceive as normal and regular, right? So, you know, Mental health is sort of irregular and feeling sad. We want to be happy and fulfilled. And we all know that we're going to face all these things in life. I was going to say nothing's more normal than grief and loss. That's right. There's nothing more normal. Right. Um, my, my most favorite book today that I'm buying by dozens is Megan Devine's It's Okay That You're Not Okay to say that to people, like, it's okay that you're not okay. There's nothing wrong with you. If a year has gone by and you're still like feeling sad, I often say to people, you haven't even struck the surface yet. Cause that first year is just like a fog and moving through it. But yeah, there's so many things in our lives that are not okay. And that is okay. If we can face it and get the help that we need, or even talk about it. You know, we don't have these conversations. Even when someone is actively dying and it's maybe within weeks of their death, you know, family members like, well, we don't want to talk about that. You know, why you think if you talk about it, it's going to make it happen. Actually, if you don't talk about it, when that person dies, everyone's staring at each other going, does anyone know what mom wanted? Just, you know, so it, it, it never ceases to amaze me that we're still got our eyes closed and our ears shut, you know. It sounds like I think you and I might be drawn to a lot of these topics for similar reasons and that I actually am such a believer that on the other side of the stigma and the fear, there is such a profound opportunity for connection when we're getting into these hard topics, because when someone is grieving, they are completely they're like 
purest essence of human forms because you just don't have capacity to put up any of the wall. You, you know, like I think when you were when you sit with someone in deep pain, it's it's awful and it's really difficult and it's it's very hard to do. And it is the greatest opportunity to really see that person's humanity and to really feel the full potential of human connection. Oh, I so agree with you, Lindsay. You know, I use that word real, like people are as real as we can be in those moments. But I think why it's so scary is people are also vulnerable in those moments. I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, an operation where they slice you open and everything's mm-hmm. laying out there. And it is. It's scary not only for us who are sitting with those people in pain, but scary for the people who are experiencing those things as well. And yet I always use the word privilege, like what a privilege that I have the opportunity to engage with people. So as you say that, you're absolutely right. You know, on the other side of all this pain is just unbelievable connection that that can happen at that deep level, which usually it takes us time to build that kind of trust and develop that kind of relationship. But again, here you are open and bleeding and there's someone there who says, okay, you know, I'm gonna put my hand on your wounds and let's be together. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I think that you said something that really struck me about our fear both witnessing it and feeling it because, and you, this kind of ties back to what you said about where like, oh, kids are resilient. And I think, I feel like I've seen this start to shift where we're kind of re-understanding what resilience means, where I think we, we formerly have thought, or many of us still think of resilience as like, I'm going to grit my teeth and keep going anyway. And I think this newer understanding of resilience is being able to feel that, to kind of let the proverbial blood flow and, sit with that and then come back from that not deny it's not like oh I'm not bleeding it's like hey we're gonna we're gonna get this under control and then move forward and I'm thinking of so a a major loss I had was actually a year ago almost exactly was my dog died and that was really really difficult for me and there's still probably not more than a few days that go by that I don't tear up or start crying, thinking about, you know, just but it's it's briefer now than it was at first. But a mantra I go to is this feeling will pass. And I think that has freed me up to, like you said, we have this fear of if we let ourselves feel some of these things, they will just overtake us. And they might for a moment or an hour or, you know, a few hours, but if you allow that to come through, it will eventually pass to the point where you can catch your breath, stand up again. It doesn't mean you're not still carrying it, but in going way back to when we were talking about incarceration and the justice system and all the loss represented there, I visualize it as like when we don't go with the feeling may pass and we don't let it flow freely and we just stuff it and stuff it and stuff it like you were saying with the with the kids even as as young as you were talking about and you keep stuffing these feelings eventually you run out of room you can't stuff anymore in and it starts to spill out and i think that's when we see some of the less adaptive ways of of not just grief but hard feelings in general oh yeah i mean right on everything you said is 
is spot on, right? I used to use the analogy of we all have a closet that we just shove stuff in. And, and I think you can, you know, people talk about compartmentalizing, right? So, you know, put in your little shoe box and put in your closet and put in your closet. But eventually, yeah, there's no more room in the closet. And one day you open it up and all that stuff just falls upon you, you know, and what are you going to do with it? So going back to what you said about resilience, yeah, it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to take this shoe box out. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to see how that feels, what I need to do. And then I can put it back for a while. And, and I think only when we allow ourselves to do that, do we get it, right? Like you said, oh, this feeling will pass. You know, I'll be okay. And again, we do it and then, oh, I got through it. And then the next day when your tears come, it's like, okay, let the tears come and I'll get through it. And so I think you're absolutely right that that shift to resilience out of, you know, pull up your pants and move forward. No, let yourself experience this. And we have more control over our feelings than we think we do. Because I think that's the other thing, right? People are worried, like, if I let myself cry, I'm going to cry forever. Yeah. But again, if you take the risk to say, let me try this, we go, oh, I often say to people that are newly grieving, take it one breath at a time. Because sometimes that's as far as we can go, Mm -hmm. you know? even if you're aware of your breath. (laughs) Well, and I want to thank you so much for what you said earlier about like your work with divorcing families and and you acknowledge so many of these other types of grief we carry. And you also reference Megan Devine, who is just a, a fabulous human who's who I've had the opportunity to work with and get to know. And one of her other quotes that I go to a lot is around that idea, because I think like just those two examples you gave, if we're looking at, say, someone who lost a partner to a death event and then someone who is losing their partner due to a divorce or a breakup, we have this tendency to say, if if we acknowledge both of those, that we're somehow equating them with each other, that we're saying, oh, me getting divorced is the same as your partner dying. And that is not what's happening. And Megan has a quote that I love, which is, all grief is not the same, but all grief is valid. And I think that's why I so appreciate. I think there's like this, if I say I'm grieving my dog, I am not saying, oh, hey, I know exactly how you felt, Evelyn, when your mother died. You know, no, we both get to have our full range of human experience. And I'm loving that we can sit here and we're both smiling because I think we understand that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and it's interesting that you talked about your your dog dying because again, you know, at times, even though our primary thing is to serve children, they have adults that come with them. And it takes me back to the beginning of our conversation. When we first started Tides, we didn't have adult groups. They kind of hung out and waited while we were with their kids. And then, oh, lo and behold, they discovered if they were bringing their children for grief loss, it probably meant they had one too. (laughs) And so we've grown and expanded. And we certainly have had children and adults who come to us because of the loss of a pet. And you're right. No one in our group treats that any less significantly right? A loss is a loss. And I love that quote from Megan Devine about every, every loss is valid. And then, you know, you and I know that when you have a loss by death or someone's incarcerated, 
there's all those secondary losses, right? And, and, and a lot of times I'm going to talk about grievers who have had a death, don't recognize those. They forget. And even if we're talking about divorce, you know, or a parent dying, oftentimes you have to relocate because financially you have to do that. And the support systems that adults and children have get yanked up. And now we're not in familiar, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And yet when I say that to people, they, they have this expression on their face like, oh, that's well, maybe that's so why. Right? Well, and speaking of unacknowledged grief, I want to pivot back to your work with the justice system, because I think when we talk about stigma and othering, it's hard for me to come up with something that seems more othered than folks who are incarcerated. And when we, you know, in the context of what we were talking about, not just the losses that might have contributed to whatever decisions that landed them in the system, then, as you mentioned, there are all of these other griefs like that is also a major loss. Like you are incarcerated, you are away from potentially your family, you are away from all of these things. And so it's loss compounding on loss. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to what you've seen on that front of grief within the system and and how that informs how you approach restorative justice? Well, sadly, Lindsay, I'm not sure that the system addresses the impact of incarceration. Again, I want to say that today there are many, many more programs that are in prisons for folks. They tend to be around maybe future career or providing, you know, a skill that you can do and things of that nature. I will say that more and more, there are processes to address mental health concerns in prison, and I'm so excited about that. But I still don't think the issues of grief, (laughs) of being incarcerated and all those losses that occur, because oftentimes a person will be released after 20 plus years and there isn't anybody that's going to receive them, not because everybody's died, but because of that stigma, because of all that. And, you know, Lindsay, one of the things that came up for me when you just asked that was there are a couple of people in my life who did have a time when they were incarcerated. And I'm thinking of two of them right now, and it makes me so sad because they still carry that stigma personally. And I remember talking to one of them just recently and going, what is that about? Like, it's 20 years ago. And and they looked with me at, with these big eyes like, wait, what? Like, like they're still feeling that shame. They will let people know, but I'm like, man, you need to do some work around that because carrying that, it's enough that the world dumps it in your lap, but carrying that stigma, yeah. So that also strikes me that who's doing that kind of work? Uh, An incarcerated person may not ask for that kind of work because they're not tuned in to they may not realize they need it yeah you know it's like carrying a monkey on your back and it's like we can help you remove that monkey yeah it it, when we've been talking about restorative justice which can be sort of broad i'm wondering how do you define explain the concept of restorative justice restorative 
and justice. So, so there are two things, but they're certainly, you know, woven together. So when I look at our current system of justice, it's a punitive system. You know, you're bad. You got to pay for this. You, you know, and we're saying, oh, okay, well, well, could we have some restoration in there? You know, which really addresses what I just mentioned. Like, can we take a monkey off people's backs? Can we say, okay, this happened, but how can we bring you back into society, family, community, whatever it might be? And so that restoration is personal for that person, but it's also beyond that. And so when I think about restorative justice, it's exactly that. Okay, let's not focus on punishment. Let's focus on how the heck did this happen? Why did this happen? Holding the person accountable for what they've done, absolutely. But instead of ostracizing them and othering them, restoring them back to the fullness of themselves and the fullness of community. And to me, that's what justice is. But I think that our justice system is not honed in to restorative justice. I love that explanation. And I love it because anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I love the word and (laughs) I I hate binaries. And I love uh, holding space for multiple things because I think it's no secret we live in a in a culture right now where we like to really just separate people like you said you're good you're bad you're on this team you're on this team you believe this or you believe this and what I love about restorative justice is it breaks that because I think some people want to classify that as as oh well you just you know want to sing kumbaya and hug people and not hold them responsible and I love that you use the word accountability and restoration so restorative justice is not just saying oh well here's a lollipop we're sorry you went through the you know like there it is both it's a both and it's not an either or and I think so many things in our culture would be better if we held more room for that including grief of not just you know the number of times I've heard people say they've smiled so people are like oh you're done with your grief it's like no I can be happy and laugh in this moment and still carry this grief and loss that I will carry with me for the rest of my life Yeah. Well, I think when, you know, when you said, I said accountability, and then you built on it, Lindsay, that accountability, if I think about justice, is on both sides. It's on the person that did whatever it is that brought them into the justice system, but it's also on the justice system to be accountable for justice. And I think, you know, so when you said that end, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, um, both sides need to acknowledge that accountability and responsibility. Um, I know one of the other programs that the organization I worked for did was about youth. Thankfully, again, in this area, we have a lot of judges and district judges who support restorative justice. And so, you know, a kid goes into, you know, Target and steals some makeup. Instead of getting them a juvenile record and all that kind of stuff, they would get referred to our program which basically is an opportunity to sit with this young person and they get a mentor and yeah, they're held accountable for what they did, but we often ask them to perhaps, and this fits right into what we're going to do, 
write an apology letter to Target, right, about what they did, or maybe do some exploration about what if they had a juvenile record, what doors would be closed for them and things of that nature. But to really walk them through this process so that it's a learning experience and it is restorative. And at the end of it, all of those charges and everything is dropped and hopefully They've learned something through the process. So yeah, it's okay, you can punish, but then what? And we're going, okay, let's just help you understand who was affected by this and the long as well as short-term effects of this. And so there's so many great programs out there that can do justice in the manner in which you and I are talking about it. Whether through you know, we talked about your work on with grief, with supporting losses of suicide survivor loss, mediation, restorative justice. The theme of your life seems to be helping people reconcile the pain that comes from being human and, and being on this imperfect planet right now. What has all of this work in all of these different realms taught you about the same fundamental needs we all have, no matter what that pain is? Well, I think, number one, what it taught me is, yeah, it's fundamental to all of us. And we're all walking around and we all have stories. And I think what really motivates me is to be able to hear someone's story. And we don't do that in the world. Like, I I can even think about when I was a kid growing up, we all sat down at the dinner table together And nowadays, that's not true, right? You know, you're feeding this kiddo and mom's taking them off to soccer and then the other kid is going to go with dad and they'll grab a bite on the, you know. So just these sort of simplistic things that we take for granted. I think that's the other thing that this has taught me is to not take things for granted. I do, I'm human. But I wake up in the morning and I'm like, It's a day that's been given to me. I don't know what it's going to hold. It might hold tremendous pain. It might hold tremendous joy, but it's a gift that's been given to me. And it sounds funny, Lindsay, but in my life, I would say that grief has given me many gifts. I would love to turn the clock and not have those losses happen. But in my own experience and in working with other folks, there are gifts that I don't think I could ever receive had it not been for those losses and the work that I continue to do. And so I think for me, and it sounds crazy as people listen to this, it's given me one of the most positive attitudes about life. And that is because I see how we human beings can get through things. We really, really can. We might need a big support system and all those things, but we can get through anything. And I firmly believe that. And I'm ready to stand and help someone get through whatever it is. Thank you for this conversation. It's been so nice getting to know you a little more and just the sharing in your in your positive energy and we have now reached apology time as you hinted at a few moments ago so now Evelyn what apology would you like to share 
Well, Lindsay, it's actually about my mom. When I was about 17 or 18 years old, and everybody was still around, mom, dad. And at that point, my younger brother was probably about nine or 10. It was 1030 in the evening at our house. Uh, My then boyfriend, who became my husband, was at our house. And my mom, in one of her mental health kind of crises, decided that she was going to leave and take my younger brother with her and go get on a bus to New Jersey, which is where one of her sisters lived. And my dad was in a reclining chair lying there. And I'm like, Dad, you can't let her do this. You know, and he's like, there's no stopping your mother. I've learned that over the years, right? And I was certainly concerned about my mom, but more concerned about my younger brother. Now, in the end, you know, she didn't go because I physically tried to stop her from going. And she took her hand and smacked me across the chin and her engagement ring cut my chin open. And with that, my boyfriend grabbed me and said, we're leaving. And I left and I went to my older sister's house and actually stayed there for several days. And the phone rang about four days later in our house and I picked it up and it was our mom. And I was, oh my God, she now discovered. I was there, the big cover up. and. When I got home, I didn't apologize to my mom for leaving because she was a frantic mom calling, trying to find her kid. When I went to church that Sunday, I had people who told me how horrible I was. How could I do that to my mom? And at that moment, you know, you think you have no idea what's going on in our house, right? (laughs) But you're respectful and you don't say anything. So my apology is to apologize to my mom for walking out and putting her through whatever turmoil that was for her. And regardless of the turmoil that I was going through at the time, it was turmoil for her too. So I offer that apology to my mom. And knowing that this was coming up, Lindsay, I did it a little sooner and apologized to my mom on Mother's Day for that. But I appreciate that I can do it publicly as well. I'm an avid dictionary person, and I did look up the word apology, and it says that it's an acknowledgement and admission of an error that's accompanied by an expression of regret. And so along with that, I'm sorry, I regret that it happened, and I know the apology is received. Evelyn, thank you for being here, for the work you do, and for sharing yourself and your apology with us. Lindsay, thank you so much for all the work that you do and for inviting me to do that. That was Evelyn Wald, a counselor, minister, and restorative justice advocate. To learn more about Evelyn and to hear additional episodes from this podcast, visit apologies-podcast.com. I'm Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts because of the algorithms and all the things. It helps other people find the podcast, which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. 
The Apologies Podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, with music by Taizo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share, and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on The Apologies Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com slash contact.